0: So last week, uh, again, thanks to Matt for, for really digging in. And as we say in preaching, shucking the corn is the way that he dealt with that text. It was heavy, rich, and he made a profound statement about, um, about the cross and the way that the church has in many ways and many times polished the cross to the extent that when we embrace it, we don't get so much as a splinter. That was appropriate. This week, we're not talking about death, As as remarkable and significant as the crucifixion is, and particularly the death of Jesus not being like any other death, the thing we talk about today is something that typically doesn't happen. People typically die. We're used and accustomed to that. People don't typically come back from death. And so we're talking about a subject today that, that if the church has kind of polished the crucifixion, I would say we've almost overlooked the resurrection. And you say, how in the world have we overlooked the resurrection? Every year I dress up in pastels and take pictures of my family on Easter. Because I don't think we've dealt with it. I don't think we've we've dealt with the preposterousness of the resurrection. I mean, I think most of you, if you think about it, from birth, have probably just accepted the resurrection as is. Now think about what you're accepting in that proposition. You're accepting that a man who was only a man, but God, died, was crucified, and came back to life. If you talk that way about any other part of the world or history or society, people would look at you like you're crazy. But this, for some reason, is culturally appropriate in the church. What I want to do today is challenge the way that we think about it and acknowledge the doubt that many folks face in this. I want us to look at the resurrection as it is, in fact, and understand how extraordinary it is. I want us to deal with the facts of the resurrection. I want us to deal with the doubt of the resurrection. And let me say that again. I want us to deal with the doubt of the resurrection. We're not here to deconstruct faith today, but perhaps maybe construct faith for the first time, because if you've never dealt with the doubt, you've never dealt with your faith. And so perhaps you'll have a chance to construct something that's never been constructed before. And lastly, I want to just answer and confess truth together, and that's the way we'll close today. We're answering a question through all of this. Of course, this journey is not just, is He risen? It's, is He alive? Is He alive has a present tense implication. And if He is alive and we believe this stuff to be true, then it has great implication for our lives. And so we're going to read the first 12 verses of Luke's 24th chapter. I'm going to pray briefly as we enter into the text, and then we will read and then unpack together. Father, this is your word given by your spirit, written by men, preserved for the church. Lord, it is for us as much as it is for any other generation. And so reveal to us and convict in us and bring us close to you through it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be thoughtful and pleasing to you because you are my rock and you are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the mother of uh, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The only translation, I I love the ESV, in case you couldn't tell. I think it's my favorite translation. I'm not like a King James only guy. It's not the only translation, but it's a good one. But I really don't like the way that it translates the words in verse 11, idle tale. It's a little confusing, a little more accurate to say. Basically, the women go to the disciples, say, our Lord Jesus has raised from the grave. And they say, it's senseless. You're foolish. You don't know what you're talking about. Basically, they couldn't make sense of it. They could not make sense of it. So, an idle tale may be a little bit difficult to translate there. So, the Apostle Paul, here's why this is so significant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that if Christ had not been raised, then, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So, everything you believe about the world, everything you believe about the future, everything you believe about the past, I can promise you this, if Christ was not raised, it's all in vain. The hours you spent in buildings like this, the hours you spent ministering in the name of Jesus, the faithfulness and sharing the gospel, whatever it may be, it's all in vain if this didn't occur. And that's the way Paul words it in 1 Corinthians. And here's the thing about the resurrection. Because I have been involved myself, unfortunately, in more philosophical debates than I ever want to admit to about the age of the earth or the miracle of Jonah. Was he really in the belly of a fish for three days or the sun standing still, right? Any miracle that we see, anything that goes against the order that we're accustomed to in the Bible is subject for debate. But let me just tell you this, none of that matters if the resurrection is not true, the greatest miracle of all. In fact, you can debate all of these things in Scripture several weeks ago. Uh, uh, friendly, awesome dude, I had the opportunity. and I consider it a privilege to meet a guy. He came up to me afterwards that said, I'm not a believer. Um, and, and you made a statement in that sermon that the world is growing increasingly evil. My thesis for that statement was Scripture, that the world is progressively growing more evil. And although that may look different in seasons. But anyway, he was challenging me very respectfully on that topic. And I finally got to the point, if we agree... If, if, we, if we established the metrics and we're going to evaluate whether the world is actually growing increasingly evil and we said all these things here and all these things here and we both agreed that the world is growing evil and you were satisfied in that, I said, here's the next thing I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you to believe that a dead man walks. Because regardless of what we prove and what we believe in Christianity, if Christ was not raised, it's all in vain. And we can spend hours and days and months and years debating the miracles of Scripture, but the truth is there's only one miracle on which we ought to focus, and it's this one. It's this one right here in the middle of Luke chapter 24. By the way, there was a Barna poll taken not that long ago that revealed that that roughly half of born-again Christian teenagers... And these teenagers would now be 20-somethings, early 20-somethings. So they'd be in universities. So at the time of this poll, nearly half of born-again Christian teenagers could not positively assert that the resurrection was a real event in history. So these are your peers who also claim born-again faith would say they could not assert that the resurrection was a real event in history. They just aren't sure and here's why because most of you in the church have just accepted the resurrection without wrestling with it believed it without questioning it most of us with any uh, even an introduction to christianity have just heard resurrection the resurrection story since we were young and just accepted it and that's good i guess for one angle but here's the problem with that many of us are living in kind of a prefab home that we just moved into rather than a home that we participated in the building of And so the construction of your faith, not the deconstruction, but the construction of your faith is dealing with this moment. And there's two major themes that Luke emphasizes, the facts and the doubt. Those are the two things that Luke shows us in this text. And he's not showing us the doubt to lift it up and showcase it and say, this is the kind of doubt you want to have. No, no, Jesus actually condemns the doubt a little bit later in this chapter. But I want to show you that Luke, that's the way he writes. He says, listen, this is what happened. You deal with it now. He, I'm going to give you the events as they occurred, and you, I'm not asking you for your emotions or your experiences. So much of our faith journey is based on emotion and experience, and I promise you, if your emotions and experiences are like mine, you are a wave being tossed to and fro every single day of your life. Luke says, here is the bottom line. Here are the facts. Here's what happened. Now deal with it. That's the way he gives it to you. So what are the facts that Luke gives you? What does, he give, what does He give us? What does He continue to pass on in writing to Theophilus, He says in chapter 1, and the rest of the church throughout history for an orderly account? What are the facts of this resurrection a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago when something extraordinary happened, when a guy who was crucified on a cross, beaten, died on a cross, ultimately was not in the tomb on Sunday morning? What are the facts around us? Well, first of all, he just again, this is as, as Matt mentioned last week about, about the writing. This is sensational. These are sensational facts. And Luke doesn't have to like make them any larger with prose. He just writes them, and here they are. These women prepared spice on Friday afternoon. You do not you do not uh, go to the body and work on the Sabbath, so they've had to wait a little while. They take their spices. They go. They notice this ton and a half to two-toned stone is moved. They're perplexed by this. They don't see the body. There's two men in dazzling clothes. The other gospels tells us these are angels. And the angels ask a great question. When's the last time you went to a graveyard looking for a person who was alive? Never. So what are you doing here? Like, obviously he's told you this. Luke chapter 9 is where Jesus has already prophesied, referring to that Galilean ministry. So they've heard it before. But I'll bet you, you didn't remember Luke chapter 9 from when when we talked about it. They're the same way. They didn't really remember those words because they weren't that significant to them. They go, the two men appear in dazzling apparel saying, why are you looking in the graveyard for live people? They greet them, they leave and go tell the disciples. We know that there's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of James. And then Peter, I love Peter's response, man, this guy's been through so much. And he's like, there's chance, there's a chance for redemption. And I'm going to go see the cloths and believe, by the way. Those are the facts that Luke presents he noticed that you just in here, that's it. He doesn't say, you better, you better get on board with this stuff. You, you, better, you better believe this. He's just saying, here it is. You've got to do with it. There are other gospel accounts of the resurrection, by the way, and by the way, these are kind of points of contention. If you read the other gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark and Luke, by the way, are what we call the synoptic gospels. And so they're very similar. They're telling three perspectives of the same story, where John's a little bit different. But all of the gospels talk about this account and they include different details. But if you read all of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, you you might come away with some questions because of the way in which they share the details differently. You might wonder, were there two angels or one? Does it ultimately matter? No, but you might wonder that. You might wonder, when did Mary Magdalene go to the tomb? Because we have a different timetable there. Or did Jesus appear to the women before they got to the tomb? Because we see that. Or was John with Peter when he went back? All these are questions there. And these are the kinds of questions that skeptics have brought to the resurrection account to discredit it and try to, to basically erode the argument. But the problem for skeptics is that every gospel writer concurs on the main point of the story. The tomb was empty. And this is what we must deal with. Wilbur Smith says that of all the variations that we see, the different perspectives in the gospel of the resurrection account, the variations in those narratives are, are only the details which are most vividly impressed on one mind or another in the witnesses of the Lord's resurrection. They're sharing different components. I promise you, if Stacy and I go to the same event at the same place at the same night, we're going to write differently about that event. I'm going to notice things that she's not going to notice, and she's going to notice things I'm not going to notice. And so it's just that kind of gospel writing. But they all confer The empty tomb. The most critical examination of the resurrection account in all of history, and believe me, in every generation, people have sought to discredit the resurrection of Jesus because on it hangs the reality of Christianity and the confession of our faith. So they have sought to discredit it. And in every generation, every place throughout ages, they've never been able to destroy the testimony that the tomb was empty. So, what are the facts, really? the empty tomb itself is a fact. The second fact is that the large stone had been moved. If you all would like to volunteer to move a two-ton stone, please raise your hand now. It's not easily done. It's not something that Mary Magdalene is going to go over there and say. Thirdly, this is a fascinating fact. The Roman guards were posted, we know this from the Bible, that the Roman guards were posted to watch over the tomb. The Roman guards went AWOL. Where are they to be? And let me just tell you this. You don't just convince a Roman guard to give up their, their duty, their assignment. You don't say, hey, I'll slip you a 20 and a cheeseburger if you'll just close your eyes when I leave. It's not that. So the, what the, the theory has been, oh, the disciples paid off the Roman guards to steal the body of Jesus. Here's the punishment for a Roman guard who failed to meet their duty. They were stripped naked and burned alive. Yeah. So, that, so, so that, that's the punishment. So if a poor little disciple comes up to you and says, hey, we're going to slip you a 20 to let us rob the body, and the risk is stripping, stripped naked in the, in the square and burned alive, the Roman guards went AWOL. Another fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were 500 witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes, 500, many of whom are still alive today. Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15. Why? So that those who would read in Corinth would read the letter and they could literally go ask their neighbor, Bob, like, hey, Bob, Paul says you were alive and saw the resurrected Jesus. And Bob's like, yeah, dude, go verify it. That's what Paul's purpose in writing that is. Dr. Ian Blakelock, a professor of classics at Auckland University, says this, I claim to be an historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. You believe more about the world before you were alive with less evidence than there is for the resurrection. There is less evidence. There are 300 extant copies of Homer's uh, of, of the Odyssey. There are 5,800 extant manuscripts of the New Testament. Over them, so all these facts are like, oh my gosh, boo. That's all Luke's doing. He's facts. He's giving you facts. The facts the disciples had were even stronger, I would say. They had an empty tomb. They had all of that in their face. And somehow, they had the firsthand account of Mary Magdalene and the other women, and they still go back, and what does it say? Does it say, oh, they rejoiced at the risen Savior? No, they said, this is senseless. This still doesn't make sense to me. And that's where I'm overwhelmed by this story, because as Luke, just as Luke gives the facts, the thing that he also presents side by side, you know, as significant as the resurrection is in these 12 verses is the doubt of the disciples. Have you noticed that? It is as as significant as the resurrection at this event. Like we celebrate the resurrection rightly so because it's central to our faith. But right in the middle of this narrative, how do we miss the second greatest theme in this text is doubt? even in the midst of facts. And you see those two things kind of Luke just kind of juxtaposing and putting those two things side by side in this really fascinating way. So before I move to the doubt just in this idea here, I want you to acknowledge that, that, that Luke does a, a phenomenal job and historically the, the validity of the resurrection as a historical reality is unbelievably powerful. Facts don't save you, though. Because even in the midst of these facts, these disciples somehow doubt. And I want to deal with this heart issue right here for just a minute, for a few minutes. Because this should be easy, right? We read it. We believe it. It has great historical reliability. Well, if they had some doubt, then it certainly stands to reason that 2,000 years of time separation, we're going to experience some of the same. The women, after all, went to the tomb to prepare a corpse. They weren't singing a hallelujah chorus preparing to meet the risen Savior. Everything about their lives is the same as ours. When people die, they stay dead. They didn't know about the great Old Testament connections that we see in Scripture, Psalm 16 being one of those that that point to the resurrection. They knew of resurrections in the past. They had seen Jesus or heard of Jesus at the very least resurrect Jairus' daughter and others. But still yet, he must be dead. This nonsense. It's also understandable their doubt because psychologically... They didn't want to open their hearts to the possibility that would make them susceptible to any more disappointment. They had been through a lot. To say, is he alive? Is he alive? Only to find his dead body hours later would just compound the disappointment they'd already experienced since Friday, wouldn't it? You know, a lot of folks are afraid of further disappointment and doubt tends to creep in that way. But we find so much in common with ourselves, or maybe I just speak for myself this morning, But I can tell you, it seems almost weekly that I'm talking to a faithful believer who is wrestling with some element of doubt in their life. And the church has a responsibility to this. The church has sometimes chastised people who admit their weaknesses and failure. And our society has a whole aversion to suffering. Philip Yancey says, Christians naturally tend to hide behind the veneer of cheerfulness and health while they secretly hurt and doubt. And when I speak about doubt, I'm not talking about like the complete, like you, you're not just giving up on God. You're not denying his existence. And I'm not elevating doubt saying, oh, doubt is this beautiful thing we ought to celebrate. Jesus, like I said, condemns it and says in, in Luke chapter 20 or verse 25 of the same chapter, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So Jesus isn't like partying with your doubt, but I want to acknowledge this because when I speak about doubt, I'm speaking about the type of doubt that every man, woman, or child has to truly wrestle with at some point in their faith journey. There's a reason that when we sing come thou fount of every blessing that y'all sing and you sing wonderfully and y'all sing louder than the 845, hear that 845, you sing louder than them every single Sunday. But there's one verse that y'all can't hold in. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And when we sing those words, even the raspiest voice in the back who never sings a word, their soul reverberates and they cry out and they say, there are other people like me. Because it's in that one verse that you recognize that there are other pilgrims on this journey experiencing doubt too, that it's not just you. But then the song ends or that verse ends, and I think we go back to that world that I'm the only poor sap who doubts. Again, I, I don't want you to give the enemy a foothold. Don't feed this, but wrestle with this. If you don't believe that the greatest leaders and speakers and teachers in Christianity have wrestled with doubt, let me just go down memory lane. C.S. Lewis says, I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. Often when I pray, I wonder if I am not posting letters to a non-existent address. You think about the man who contributed so much to Christendom. And in the darkness of a night, he says, sometimes I wonder if I'm writing to a non-existent address. If you're a Calvinist in the room, you may be sitting here saying, well, you heathen, you speak of doubt. John Calvin says this about doubt. Surely we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. I love Calvin's beard, as an aside, and I always have, in his little hat. <laughs> just, just look down and imagine Matt in that same <laughs> hat with that same beard. So I'll go to a heftier man named Charles Spurgeon who we can't help but love. I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. Only Spurgeon can say something like this. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. Yeah, every every believer has and does. Um, every, every believer. Every believer. We acknowledge it. We don't celebrate it. We don't avoid it, but we deal with it, right? We, we recognize that through doubt, faith emerges stronger than before. Faith emerges stronger than before. You can't pretend it away, and you can't pretend that you're the only one here. Um, that quote from Spurgeon comes from an entire sermon on, on the dark night of the soul. Doubt is going to manifest itself in your life in one of two ways. The healthy way is that you confess it. You confess it to Jesus and you confess it with others. Not to be fixed or rid of it, but, but to grow through it. Like you can do that. And so that's the healthy way. The unhealthy way that doubt will manifest itself in your life is a lack of obedience. Your hesitation in actually following Jesus. So you can't pretend that just because you never say anything about your doubt that no one's ever going to notice or it's going to go away. You won't follow a man you doubt. When Jesus calls a man, as Bonhoeffer says, he bids him come and die. And you won't give your life for someone you doubt. The disciples believed so much in the resurrection account which we know there was no interest in the Romans. There was no interest for them to manufacture the resurrection. There was no interest in the Jewish leaders to manufacture the resurrection. And if the disciples, the only ones who had an advantage, if there were one, in manufacturing the resurrection, just remember that nearly all of them were killed for their faith. And if there weren't a true resurrection, they would have been killed for a lie. People don't die for a lie. And so the two ways that we we will manifest our doubt is in confession or in a lack of obedience. Either we confess our doubt before Jesus and others, or that doubt will make itself known in the absence of obedience in your life. Is this perhaps one of the great plagues of the modern church? Is the lack of obedience in the church a result of unspoken doubt? Pride, shame, All those words that come to mind when you look at another believer, you say, but I can't. I sing, I preach, I teach, I disciple. I could never, I could never confess this to another person. Again, they're looking at an empty tomb. (laughs) They're seeing firsthand the fulfillment of firsthand prophecy from Jesus, and still yet, they doubt. I plead with you not to dismiss doubt, not to hide doubt, not to be ashamed of it, but rather to confess it freely. To be honest with God because our God is big enough, holy enough, and high enough to hear it. And His correction may come swiftly, his mercy may be known bountifully, but confess it. Because Luke masterfully does this, as I've already said, here are the facts of the resurrection. You have a decision to make. But you can't just say, is he risen? Are these events true? You can't leave it in the factual. That's the thing about this. So so The journey through doubt The journey through doubt is a process of confession and reminding. (laughs) That's why we remind each other of the gospel. That's why we confess it to one another. That's like what we do together, church. When you are in in a season of despair or doubt, you know what you need? You need other Christians reminding you of the gospel. Like you need to be reminded of this. You need to hear this again and anew and afresh every single day. But here's the the implications of, of, of the resurrection. Because what Luke does, again, is say, here it is, you deal with it. But you can't simply say, is he risen? Is he risen? And just get away with it and say, okay, that's good, he's risen, amen. Now we can go eat our Easter dinner and be done. The resurrection is so central. As Paul has already said, the resurrection... If the resurrection not be true, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain. Why? Because the resurrection theologically shows the Father's acceptance of the crucifixion according to Romans chapter 1. It is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies we will see in Acts 2. The early church will be preaching Psalm 16 saying, we knew this was coming, we can see it now. All of history has been working up until this point and all of history looks back to this point. But it's not simply a question, is he risen? Because the implications are far greater. If he is risen, then he is alive. If he is alive, then he is an authority. If he is an authority, you have responsibility. You you see, if Jesus did raise from the dead and he is alive, then every other claim that he makes is true as well. And the calling upon your life to obedience is true as well. So just imagine with me for a moment if a man walked up to you who had never heard the gospel before and he hears you're a Christian and he hears the gospel and he says, all right, so he's looking at your life, however your life looks, and he's saying, so you believe, let me get this right, you believe that there was a man who is God, who was like this Jewish carpenter. You say, yeah, I believe it. And you believe that he died a brutal death. You're still a pretty easy believism so far. And you say, yes, just just think about this. Just how crazy this sounds. Yes, I believe it. I believe he rose from the dead. You believe he rose from the dead. Yes, I believe he rose from the dead. Okay. And you believe that he went up and is with the father who is in heaven. He's with God now. Yes, I believe is in God in heaven. And you believe he's coming back. Yes, I believe he's coming back in the sky, in the sky, on a horse, on a horse, with a sword, with a sword. Yes. All of that. I believe that. And then they look at you and they say, what kind of shrooms Have you been eaten? That's how crazy our story is. But here's the real question. And he, you believe all of that. And he calls you to give your life to him. Yes. Yes. But what does that mean? And what does that look like for you? What does it look like? Because it's not just did Jesus raise from the dead? It's, If he raised from the dead, he is alive. And if he's alive, he's authoritative. And if he's authoritative, you have a responsibility. And your responsibility is what? To follow him. And that's not just a part of your life, that's all of your life. If the resurrection be true, then you too are called to lay down your life, to have new life. Your obedience hangs in the balance of this. This is key. This is why this is more than just a mental exercise. This is why I believe that we demonstrate our doubt most often in the modern church, but through a lack of obedience. I don't think we've dealt with this. I don't think we've dealt with the implications. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna close today wrestling with all of this. This is not something you just zip up and go home and say, well, I'm glad that's over. But we're going to do something that's, that's really powerful and it's historic in the historic church, the confessions of faith and And I know that that what resonated with you most emotionally this morning was probably doubt. You probably feel that. You probably feel that at certain points in your life and and that kind of stuff. What probably didn't resonate with you as emotionally are the facts. You're happy about those facts. Praise God for those facts that they're real. Um, And I get that. that. That's kind of designed that way. But let me just remind you of what the facts indicate, that whether or not you feel it, whether or not you're emotionally uh, 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 focused or, or you're, uh, you're feeling close to Jesus, the facts remain, brothers and sisters, that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, He rose again. And He ascended into heaven. And He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you know the church has written that confession In order to battle the doubt that creeps in through the ages. And the most powerful response to doubt is not seeking your soul or proving your self worth or trying to get yourself closer to Jesus and saying, I just, oh, I'm just such a bad believer. I'm such a bad Christian. Oh, I'm going to go eat worms. I just, oh. It is just confessing truth, confessing the facts. And so we're going to do that. We're going to do that through song, in a song y'all know called Is He Worthy? And so as we sing this song together, we actually, I know a lot of you are going it's, to, it's I'm going to just let you in. We're not going to do the response much like you may use, but there's going to be a time when we get to finally respond to this song. I encourage you to sing this song with us and ask a lot of good questions. And then there's an opportunity to respond where we say, I do believe it. And if that is you, if you can this morning not rely on your own emotions or your experience or where you are, but rely on the, on the reality that Christ rose from the dead, then I want you to sing out, I do. And I want you to raise your hand and I want you to say, I believe this even when I don't. I believe, help my unbelief. And brothers and sisters, this life is a life and if it's not been evidenced. We have, we have undeniable facts before us, but let me tell you the devil's after us with doubt, the enemy comes after us with this, and I know this, but we're going to confess the faith together, and if you're too weak to do it this morning, just listen to your brothers and sisters do it around you. Let me pray, stand with me, and let's do that. Father, we know that 2,000 years ago, the most miraculous event in all of human history, the event to which all of history past and all of history future is tied. We serve a Savior who is no longer in the grave. We serve a Savior who is seated at the right hand of the Father this morning, regardless when we feel it and regardless of the doubt that creeps in we know you to be good we know you to be true and we know you father to be with us in this moment so lord let us not look to our emotions or our experiences to 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 evaluate our faithfulness but rather to the unchanging truth of the gospel of jesus christ and father we ask this morning we ask questions we ask are you alive are you worthy and we will respond with great faith in the facts and the change of time and history that you have put together. Lord, we confess as the church that you are worthy now in Jesus' name. Amen.